Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Uh, good morning, church. My name is Andy Short, and uh, I'm going to be reading our scripture uh, this morning from Ephesians. And uh, I would invite you to stand while we read um, as a sign of reverence and respect for God's Word. Uh, So, uh, this is Ephesians chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Well, I think that's the uh, whoa. I think that's the first time in the history of the church that we've ever read from Ephesians 19. Um, just kidding. We are, we are um, is this on? No. How about now? That echoey, but it's okay. Um, we are uh, looking at the Gospel of Luke going into Easter, and it's uh, customary for the church uh, on the heels or on the, on the front end of looking into Easter uh, to observe Palm Sunday. Now, uh, what, what does Palm Sunday mean? Palm Sunday just simply means in a word that Jesus is the King. Now, there are enormous implications of that, but what do we mean by Jesus is the King? Well, I think we can unpack that and understand it uh, through this text by observing just three things. Let's observe three things to get the meaning of Palm Sunday and what it means for Jesus to be King. Let's look at the, the one, the cry of the crowds, a two, the complaint of the religious, and then three, the path of the King. So first, uh, the cry of the crowds. So Luke doesn't have it, but Matthew and Mark note that the people have palm branches. Uh, now, what's the significance of that? Uh, the singing of hosannas and the waving of palm branches uh, was a way for a returning king to be greeted uh, by his people if he went off to war and was successful in battle. When he returned to celebrate his victory, uh, they would wave these branches saying, uh, he's the king. But the crowds are saying something even bigger here because they're quoting the Hebrew Scriptures in verse 37 and 38. Uh, They're quoting from Psalm 118, uh, verses 25 and 26, uh, speaking not just about any king, 
but they're speaking about the messianic king, the promised one true king that would come from the line of David, would come into the world, and would make all things right. I mean, they say this in verse 37 and 38, uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As this is uh, the proclamation of the one true hope uh, out of the Jewish people that somebody would come into the world, look at all of the brokenness, and heal it. But I, would, I want you to pause with me for a second, because I don't just think that that is a Jewish hope. I think that is, that is a human hope. I mean, consider for a second all of the, the hero stories that we are obsessed with in our culture, that we, we make a part of our curriculum, when we make a part of our budget. I mean, uh, why are we so addicted to things like Beowulf, the Odyssey, King Arthur, the Hobbit, you know, Batman, Superman, Star Wars? Why, why do we keep writing the same tale that sort of says there's something dark, there's something evil, but there's somebody come along to heal it? Now, it's easy to become cynical about those things and dismiss them or, or to feel like we're above that. Those are for children. But if you do that, if you, if you dismiss those things, something in you will die. And you will begin to think that all that matters and all that should matter in this world is money. G.K. Chesterton one time was written a letter uh, by a mother who uh, complained about fairy tales and said that children should not be exposed to these fairy tales. They should not be exposed to the darkness, uh, to these uh, evil uh, dragons, these evil uh, characters who would want to hurt people and want to destroy the world. And Chesterton wrote back to this mom, and he said, listen, if you protect your children and shield your children from these kind of stories, then something in them will not grow up that desperately needs to grow up. And that's the belief that there is something out there in the world to address evil. He wrote this to the mom. He said, fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogie monster. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of the boogie. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. Now, in this text, when these people claim this and they're quoting this, do you know what they're saying? They're saying, that's possible in this man. This is astonishing what happens. If you look in verse 30, Jesus says, go into the city and find a colt and untie it on one which no one has ever read and on one that no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. And then verse 36, Luke just says that Jesus got on this colt and rode into the city. Don Carson in his work on this says something astonishing. He says, you know, it's not natural for a colt to just be ridden, especially the first time. It's not as though people mounted this and the colt goes, I've been waiting this my whole life. I'm glad you hopped on me. Let's march along. No, they're repugnant. They fight. They rebel. They push back. But with this man, 
when he climbs upon it, it's just a simple march along, which says there, there's something about him, there's something about his presence that brings a harmony into this animal. The prophet Isaiah, when he spoke about the Messiah one time, he said this in chapter 11. He said, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Meaning, when this Messiah comes, it's not just going to be spiritual truth. It's going to be the entire creation that comes back into harmony in a way it's never been before. And you know what? This is not something that just the crowds want to be true, and so they're telling themselves this. Jesus himself is saying this because in verse 40, after the Pharisees push back and say, you know, hey, we have to, to squash this claim. We have to squash this, this um, demonstration that's going on. Jesus says in verse 40, he says, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's saying, he's saying my arrival is so encompassing. It, it is so overwhelming that, that it doesn't just overwhelm the human heart. It's going to overwhelm every part of creation to the point that the stones will sing that the king is back. Here's what Luke is saying here with this little section for us. He's telling his readers, do, do you remember when the prophets in the Old Testament talked about Somebody would come and the trees would sing and the animals would look up and say, our king is back. And everybody would recognize that healing is on the way. He's saying in this moment, that is beginning to happen now. In this man going into this city. And the crowds are crying out for it that our king is here. It's the cry of the crowds. But secondly, observe this, that there is a grumble, there is a complaint amongst the religious. See, it's not as though everybody sees this king and says, yay, the end of the world, the healing, the thing that we've all been waiting for, it's finally here now. In verse 39, it says, when the crowds are doing this, the Pharisees seeing it say this, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, what is happening here? Notice this. The crowds have been saying, you are the king. Blessed is the king. The king is here. And what do the religious Pharisees, the scholars of the Bible, immediately say? They turn to him, and first of all, they say, teacher. They do not acknowledge him as king. They will not follow this claim. They will not follow this cry. They turn and they say, teacher, which is actually something that's very instructive for us in the modern way of sort of processing spirituality and what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. Because these disciples, excuse me, these Pharisees were, were in a sense disciples. They, were, they had been following Jesus. They'd been around Him and clearly gleaning from Him because they call Him teacher. But what's happening is they've come to a place where they say, you know, hey, we appreciate what you're lear we're learning from you. But if you're going to call yourself a king, you're going to call yourself a god and have an authoritative place in our life, I'm out. Now, why? Why are they so drawn to do this? Well, what happened with the Pharisees is that they had a paradigm for who the Messiah would be 
And this man riding a colt going into Jerusalem, inevitably to run into the religious leaders to go into the temple to have the Roman overseers see this demonstration is not going to give them what they thought they were going to get out of it with this man. There's a place in John's account of this very event where he says this in John 12. The Pharisees look at this and they say amongst themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world is going after him. They're sort of saying this, if he was the true king, then what would happen is everyone, the Roman world, everyone would look at him and put their swords down and bow down to him. And they have this fear that he's going to go in and they're not going to put their swords down, they're going to take them up. And they begin to realize this is going to cost us something. This is not going to give us what we wanted. And they're turning on him. And this is something that is, that is very revealing about the human heart, that if you don't get in touch with, you will not understand why you are so drawn to certain things in culture and repelled by others. See, what, what this text needs to help you do is to admit to yourself that you and I, we, we desperately want a king. We desperately want somebody to come back, to come into our world, to come into our lives, to come into our culture, and to make things right, to heal it, to bring justice, to bring resolution. But we want them to come and to make it right the way we believe it should be right. That we want them to come and to fit our view of how the world should be healed. Uh, Jonah Goldberg is a, he's a columnist for uh, the Los Angeles Times. He's written for the New York Times. He writes now a magazine out of D.C. had an article uh, earlier this year on uh, elite theory. He called it a royalty real and imagined. And in his article, what he does is he sort of unpacks our, our relationship with elites in our culture. And he says, you know, we have a natural distaste a natural hate for the elites in our culture. But the fascinating thing is as we hate them, we actually are not trying to get rid of them. In fact, what we do is we hate elites over here and we actually want to be them or we want to be elevated by them or we want them to give us some sort of status in life that we desperately want. He said this. He says, nobody ranting about elites is actually trying to get rid of elites nor could they get rid of elites if they wanted to, because baked into an American social fabric. The question, again, is what kind of elites do we want? What is striking to me is how the people who find this elite bashing so attractive on both the left and the right have so much in common. They all want to be heard. They don't want to be constrained by institutions, they want to be elevated and celebrated by them. They want the wrong thinkers silenced or canceled and the right thinkers privileged and honored. Everyone is their own priest. Their feelings are their own north star and the elites respond accordingly. We are what we worship and we worship ourselves. Now, this is very profound because do you hear what he's saying? He is saying, you and I cannot avoid a king. Now, when one comes in power, when, when any kind of elite over us becomes in power, do you know why we hate them? 
and why you're so resistant to who they are. It's because they are not going to elevate the kind of life that you want to live, which is what you most treasure. Now, our American impulse even to that is to sort of say, well, hey, nobody's an authority over me. Uh, I only answer to myself. I only think for myself. I only respond to myself. But if you go down that road, that will not help you whatsoever. C.S. Lewis once said, he said, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Man, do you hear what, you hear what Lewis is saying? He is saying, you can no more avoid a king in your life than you can avoid food. The question is not, will we have somebody over us? Will we have somebody steward us? Will we have somebody come back? The question is, who do we want to, to give that influence to? Who do we want to entrust that with? There's a, there's a, a line in one of Michael Douglas's movies where he's playing a scientist and he says, I realized you can't destroy power. All you can do is make sure it's in the right hands. In verse 37... Luke notes that when they're saying, blessed is the king, and they're crying out Psalm 118, he he says, the whole multitude of disciples. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. All of these people are saying, we want to entrust this man, this kind of man with power. We want to entrust this person as the king. We want to follow you. And you know what happens is a couple chapters later, When he goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple and he's confronted by the religious leaders and he will not recant his claims about his own messianic life, they're going to kill him. All of these disciples leave. It's because even they thought that this kind of power that he's going to give, this is what we want to restore our social status, to reclaim the temple as the center of the world, to restore the religious patterns of the Jewish life into the Roman world. And when he won't do it, when he won't undo that, they all want to leave. And you know, you and I, if we're honest, and let me invite you to just have an honest moment with me for a second, almost none of us come to Christianity for the right reasons. Almost all of us come just like that, where you hear some sort of claim about what God can do for your life, or how God can heal the afterlife, or God can deal with a little bit of guilt in your life, and for some reasons, we're drawn to it. But it's never the reasons about following a king into the problem into the upside-down world of of the kingdom of God, into a life of persecution, into a life where you will be honoring a king who never gets honor in this world. And you know what? If you've not had that honest moment, you will. Because what will happen is the self-interest that probably brought you at some point into Christianity will come in conflict with what God wants for your life. And look, and what, what Easter wants to do with you 
is, is give you promises that nothing else in this world will give you. To open up a life that we all, we all beg for. We all long to see God bring into this world. But you know what? To get to that kind of Easter, to get to those promises, you've got to open yourself up to the idea of a king coming into your life for reasons you did not originally want. N.T. Wright, in his little book on uh, Luke, puts it this way. He says, as we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question presses upon us. Are we going along for the trip in hopes that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long and dusty pilgrimage of following Jesus gives us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks out on the road for him, to to do showy and flamboyant things, but also not to follow him into trouble, controversy, trial, and death? See, what Palm Sunday is asking you to do is to follow this king and cry out, not just blesses the king, but cry it out with a tone that goes from give me what I want to teach me what I need. And if Palm Sunday gets into the bottom of your soul, what it will do is it will tell you, you long for a king, but you need to acutely ask, why do you want that king? Is it to give you what you want? Or is it to have you follow him to restore this world the way it was meant to be designed? Look, to get Palm Sunday into our life and to understand what it means for him to be the king, you've got to see, look, the cry of the crowds, the complaint of the religious, but thirdly, the path of the king. Look, what will, what will open you up but will open your heart up to let God redefine for you what the kingdom of God is and where he's going and not just what you want. It's, it's when you see the path of the king. See, the triumphal entry given in this moment, it, 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 it's a name of great irony. Look, the idea of a victorious king in this culture, of somebody returning from battle, uh, entering into the city, would have been really well known at this time. But the way this happens is God's way of, of looking at the world and the way the world views power and the way that the world views influence and the way that the world views comfort in turning everything upside down. Look, I mean, first of all, the way that this king rides in, I mean, typically a victorious king would have ridden in uh, with his army, uh, with crowds around him. And he would have ridden in on a, on a steed or uh, with, with chariots or something austri- just glorious for him to come in on. But it says in verse 33 that the disciples go to attain a colt. And when they go get it, somebody says, why are you untying that colt? And they respond, it is for the Lord. Now, this little, it wasn't just a cult, it was a baby cult. It had never been used before. It had never been trained before. I mean, the, the person standing there asking this question had to hear, it's for the Lord, and, and almost laugh. Like, are you serious? 
Because for a Lord, that, that would have been like, you must be mistaken, not this one. You know, not little Dumbledore over here, but, you know, the, the big beautiful one over there. That's the one you want. But this king, the way he rides in is unlike anything else in the world. It, 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 it's not in a glorious golden throne. It's on a meek, untamed, unused donkey. Second of all, the way he, he comes in, as he entered, as the king would have entered, there would have been symbols of his victory. They would be singing these songs of praises. The palm branches would have been out, waving uh, glory and honor and praise for him. But they would have done this on the heels of a king winning a victory for them. So what the typical vision was, was a king would conquer their enemy, uh, would set these people free from the, the tyranny of another nation, and they would come back in, and they would be praising him for all of the work that he had done. But almost the exact opposite's happening here, because it says in verse 28 that he's going up to Jerusalem. That as Jesus is doing this, he is going up to Jerusalem. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, if you read throughout the whole Gospel, this phrase actually shows up all the time, going towards Jerusalem. And it's Luke's way of constantly hinting about what the mission of Jesus is going to be and how his mission is going to be God's victory through the giving of his life. In fact, what most scholars will show you is that in Luke 9.51, the entire gospel changes directions on this particular verse where it says this, when the days drew near to him to be taken up, he, that's Jesus, set his face towards Jerusalem. And what Luke is saying here is he's saying, look, this king, he's not returning back from a victory. He's going to walk into a place to win a victory. He's not coming back from unleashing death on other people. He's going to walk in to his own death. But the third observation about this is he walks in. Is that a king, what he would have done is he would have come back from a victory to these praises, to these palm branches, and then he would have immediately gone into the city, into the temple, and offered a sacrifice to the gods. But you know what this king will do? is that he's not going to walk into the temple and offer a sacrifice because he will say that I am the temple and say that I am the sacrifice. And what Luke is trying to tell us is that this is the long-awaited king, but it's a king unlike any other king because it's a king that comes in and says he will rule by serving. He will win by losing. He will change hearts not by coercing, but by forgiving and laying his life down. Director uh, Joe Russo, who has produced and directed some of the most lucrative hero movies in the past decade or so, uh, he was interviewed about a lot of his works and asked about why they're so successful. And he said, because the most compelling heroes are the the vulnerable ones who make sacrifices. In the interview, he said, for us, it's very important that the hero feels pain, and that they make sacrifices because I think that not only is it great storytelling, but it's also the most inspiring thing for the human soul. The most compelling hero is one where victory costs them something. Do you know why? Wherever you are spiritually right now, you ought to consider this king 
and engage on Palm Sunday and understand what this means in the bottom of your soul, it's because where this king is going is the only hope for the world. That this is a king who's not come to start one more war. This is not a king who's come to take advantage of, to tell you something in the campaign and to take advantage of you in his whole platform. This is not a king who's out for his own recognition or his own reputation. This is not a king who's out for any of his own gain. But this is a king who's come to die to ransom his people and to do it in a way no one has ever done. He's come to triumph in humility over pride, poverty over affluence, meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. And what Easter will do for you is in a profound way and maybe in a new way is tell you that that is the way of life. Look, what it means to be a Christian is not to gain cultural influence. It's not to take over the schools again. It's not to take over the TV again. It's not to take over any part of our way again except for the way God does it in laying our lives down and doing it in humility and doing it in service and doing it in sacrificial, unconditional love after the pattern of Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. But the way that that will get into your heart and the way that that will get to the bottom of your soul is if you see the king leading the way, is if you see the king of Easter going ahead when no one knows where he's going and no one will follow him once he begins to do what he does. There's there's an amazing legend uh, in Scottish history uh, in the early part of the 14th century when Scotland was under extreme tyranny from England. And it looked like they were at the bottom of the barrel and they were on their last days. And they're in battle And Robert the Bruce, the king, is out there leading his people, severely unmanned, severely unresourced. And he gets off his horse, and he takes on one of their famous English soldiers in battle. And he goes after them, the English soldier on a steed with his lance, and the Bruce with only an axe takes him on one at a time willing to lose his life, willing to go in and sacrifice everything for his countrymen and his people. And as he went in, he defeated this English soldier and set the pace for the entire country. The people responded that night, this is a king worth dying for. That is a king we can follow. When they saw a king who was willing to lay his life down, who was willing to die, who was willing to go out not for his glory, but for the glory of his people. They said, I can follow this. That's the hope of the work of Easter. Will you open yourself up to that? Will will you let the the king of Palm Sunday, will you let that into your heart all the way at the bottom where you begin to realize, even if I don't want the things that he wants right now, If I let him in my life, one day I'll want what he desperately wants me to have. Look, to the degree that you will open yourself up to the king, look, he will give you back yourself. He will make those promises real. Open yourself up to that. That's the meaning of Palm Sunday. Let me pray.
Father, help us not to see our, ourselves. Help us to see you. Help us to have eyes for the King. Help us to have a heart drawn towards what He would be, towards what He would do. Lord, to see that, that you are a king, you are a Lord unlike anything else. Lord, for anybody whose, whose curtain is around their heart, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would open it up. Lord, and they would see the king humbly walking in for them. Help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.